I'm Kate Daniels. Veterans Day is this next weekend, and my hope is that in hearing Patrick Smithick's account of his son Andrew's return from two tours of duty in Iraq, it's going to help us think about how we treat our young people, how we treat our veterans. Patrick Smithick, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us today. Kate, thank you very much for inviting me, and I'm I'm flattered to be on your show, and I'm looking forward to, to talking to you. Well, you know, it felt like the perfect thing to do, because when we spoke earlier this year, when I first became aware of your book, War's Over, Come Home, and we were able to have a really good conversation about our returning vets, those who come home, but... They come home, but to what? What is their life like? And so your son, Andrew, well, just give us, a, for those who maybe did not hear that conversation, just give a little recap, if you would, of what had gone on to make you write the book. Well, the, the book begins with us searching for Andrew. And um, we are searching for him because he had fought in Iraq as a Marine, had two tours in Iraq. And... Um, the, saw some extreme violence on the, the second tour in particular. Then he came home and he served five years as a Marine and he was decommissioned only about four or so months after being in, in war and, and being in battle zones. And um, at first when he got out, he seemed like he was doing all right and he had some jobs and then pretty good jobs. He got jobs very quickly in security and driving. He, lo- he loves to drive, especially heavy equipment, which he did a lot of in the Marines. But then he started having the, the signs of post-traumatic stress syndrome. We didn't really know what it was. He developed a little twitch. He started obsessing on things. And it took a, a few years, really, for it to all to build to the point where he was hallucinating and imagining that his brother was on the roof uh, and worked for the CIA and was watching him and that we were sending terrible messages to his em- employment. So he uh, held his last job about four years after leaving the Marines, and then he became homeless, and we didn't hear from him for a long time. And then the book recounts trying to find him, and many times... We would just be called in the middle of the night. We used Facebook a lot. We called contacts all over the country, and people would send us texts, emails, messages. We think we've seen him. We think we've seen him, and everyone wanted to help. Then we'd look at the photographs and the pictures, and if we thought maybe it was him, the next day we'd jump in a plane, and we'd be going to Albuquerque, San Diego, uh, Santa Fe, all kinds of places searching for him. So the book is about searching for Andrew, and it's also a microcosm of what is going on in the country today where there are, um, the situations improve with homeless vets. And, and uh, t- 10 years ago, there were almost 70,000 homeless vets. Today, 40,000 of those are in shelters provided by the HUD and by Veterans Affairs. But there's still 33,000 out on the streets. And many families are um, dealing with this, thousands of families, as we are. So I think of the book as uh, something that's happening on a large scale. And that's why I wrote it as sort of a wake-up call to America. These are our, our, I was going to say children. They were children when they first went to war, but basically some of them are 18 years old. They would, they really wouldn't like me saying that. And I should take that back <laughs> there, but they're going to bat into battle, 19, 20, 21 years old. And I've even talked to colonels who have led these young men into battle in Afghanistan, I talked to a colonel, and he just said it affects them so severely 
because their life experiences are not that they haven't been through much in life and all of a sudden they're seeing all these terrible things. So the book is very much it's about looking for Andrew and our family pulling together trying to find him and it's also about seeing all the homeless people all over the country. Thank you Patrick. So that gives an idea of what the book is but you obviously have a lot more story in there and details that it behooves any of us to pick up a copy of Wars Over Come Home to really understand if we do not have a family member who has served and has come home. And the reason I wanted us to talk again at this time with Veterans Day coming, and I had thought this when we spoke before about how we make such a big deal about Memorial Day, about Veterans Day, and yet in between, we don't think about these young Typically, they're young men and women who come back from such atrocious situations. We're celebrating them, but what are we doing in between? What should we be doing differently? So that was uh, really my thought about looking at Veterans Day and, and the fact that there's so much heartache for the veteran, for the person themselves, but for the family, as you described, you know, needing to react to different messages of of a sighting of Andrew and wanting to be with your son. So that is why I feel it's timely to talk about this and and see what are we going to do as a country to to make changes. But since the book came out last May and we're approaching Veterans Day, which is the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. And as we approach it, I'm thinking that I've learned so much in these last six months. And one of the um, striking insights I've had into American life is I would say one out of every seven people that I meet that have read the book or I meet them at book signings or talks I'm giving, at least one out of every seven has someone in their family that has severe trauma. And I'm not saying it's all from war, but, but they come up and they identify with what we're going through and they're trying to figure out what to do. Or they themselves have had the trauma. And I've met many veterans at my signings, and I've been humbled and uh, flattered. I was at one signing in Maryland at the Baltimore County Commissioners on Veterans Affairs, and two of the veterans who fought in the wars told me it was brave to write my book. I just couldn't get over that. And the veterans have been very supportive of the book. What I'm getting around to is that this trauma is spread through our society. And so You know, I hope there are definitely things we can do. There's all kinds of uh, treatment. But the one thing for our veterans is when they are decommissioned, hopefully the military is doing a better job on it now. There are actually places you can go after you leave the military, sort of like to a camp where you go for three weeks. They're independent from the um, United States government. And you learn how to do all the things you have to do as a civilian because you have to make your own schedule. And when Andrew's in the Marines, everything's tick, tick, tick. Everything is certain time of day. It's all organized. And he thrived in that environment. So for civilians, when someone gets out of the military, I think it's very important not to, you know, tell the person, you know, they might be going through a hard time, but to try to assist them, ask how things are going. Maybe there's something you could do. Maybe you can introduce them to someone who could help them find a, a good job. Or maybe they want a completely different career from whatever it was they're doing in the military. In the military, there's so many things you could be doing that are very similar to, to jobs in the civilian world. But uh, that's something I would uh, definitely like to see people do. 
And then, of course, with uh, Veterans Day coming up, I'm very aware of veterans on the sidewalk and um, veterans walking through towns and with their signs. And I think it's a help to them to go up and talk to them as if they are a young, independent man or a woman and to ask them what they're doing and if there's anything uh, you can do to help. And would that be something that they might be receptive to going for a cup of coffee? Maybe they would be uh, interested in sitting down and, and, and sharing a sandwich or a burger or something like that. That is so interesting you voiced it that way. Because recently I've met all these different organizations and some of the organizations say that they can help us find Andrew. And I met this uh, one organization called Saratoga Warhorse. I met one of the founders of it, Jim Price. And he mentioned that there are veterans in uh, New Mexico, where we think Andrew might be, who have been through the equine-assisted therapy and and who have succeeded and uh, graduated and are so grateful. And that these are the type of people, a military person, a veteran, who perhaps could see Andrew walking down the road one day and could walk up and talk to him. So uh, it's especially important for because the veterans like talking to veterans. And um, it's so what you said is very important. If, if anyone could walk up to Andrew, because we've seen um, photographs from a few months ago, and he's not unapproachable. He's just always by himself. We don't know exactly where he is. We just get these pictures once in a while. But if someone walked up and said, you know, would you like to have a cup of coffee or I'd like to have a sandwich with you or could I walk with you? They might talk to the veteran, see what's going on, perhaps get them out of that lockstep there his uh you have ptsd your mind gets set a certain way and you don't want to leave that you just want to keep everything going the same way they have a very difficult time changing their paths and uh so any little any little uh, move like that could definitely help a, a homeless veteran and i did not know about that program, uh, and hopefully some of it exists here in our uh, Northwest region, but regardless, anyone who is able to reach out, and particularly if they've had some sort of connection to military, might be a way of of opening that door. Yes, that that is definitely, I was at a book signing the other uh, day, and a veteran reminded me of that, and the that they're much more likely to talk to someone that says, you know, I was in Iraq too. Then they can kind of take a deep breath and relax and they know they've shared some of the same experiences. That's a good point. That That is great. Ideally, what I would want us to see, because we're seeing more and more of all the tragedy from the wars we encounter, and yet they keep continuing more and more happening, and we send off our innocent young people to this. We talked about 18, 19, 20 years old. Uh, It's it's horrific. Uh, uh, That's the ideal, is to just not have to endure that. Honor those who have done it in the past, but don't keep continuing to create more and more. Oh, you're saying that, yeah, don't keep continuing these wars. (laughs) That is ideal. I agree. uh, I've taught medieval. I'm a teacher, and I've taught mainly English. But for a 10-year sprint, I taught medieval history to sixth graders. And then then I've written a couple of books that have quite a bit to do with history, with modern American history. And it's just unbelievable as you go through it how many wars there are and battles. And and, uh, most of them don't really accomplish very much. So hopefully, yeah, if the human race could 
could uh, figure out a way not to not to be involved in so much violence, that would be wonderful. Wouldn't it? Maybe that is something we could do this Veterans Day and, and every day, actually, is to think about how to limit the violence eradicated bit by bit from our own personal lives. And it takes many forms, you know, a, an angry look, a, a, a flippant word. There, there's that kind of violence that affects people. So my feeling is that just in general, I have thought this, we need to just be kinder, more compassionate and understanding. Maybe if, if we could make that a, a virus that everyone catches, we, we could finally get to the point of uh, thinking of not perpetuating wars. I think that is an excellent point. And uh, just I've been doing some driving um, uh, to, on trips to signings, and I'm just astonished that at this age, I'm 72 now, and it just being on the highway and the people, the, the way they drive and they tailgate and they get all mad at you if you, if you, you know, you do any little thing that they don't think you should be doing. And it's this sort of latent violence and this angriness. And I agree if if there's some way that that we well of course there is a way that we can encourage as teachers encourage students to be more civil and as uh, people who own businesses and just encourage civility and manners and caring about other people and not uh being such, in such a rush and just thinking about yourself and uh, i think that would be wonderful if we could spread that virus as you say and that's a good point uh, mentioning the driving because I agree. You're on the East Coast. We're out here on the West Coast. Same kind of scenario about the angry, aggressive driving that goes on. It it is very frightening to at times to to just be on the roads. That you know the choice would be don't be there uh, because of that. So whatever we can do, if we notice ourselves as maybe being somewhat aggressive, you know, try to put the brakes on that and and be kinder to each other. Yes, I think that's an excellent point, and the uh, a lot of good schools are are stressing that now, and you know there there is hope for us to uh, to keep doing that, and I think Americans in particular get in such a rush, and they you start thinking that you're so important and you're trying to achieve the American dream, and uh, our life is with all the technology we have now, and then the multitasking <laughs> encourages it too because you see people on the road and they're talking on their cell phone and they're driving in the car and the kids are in the back and it's just too much and so if something happens they sit on their horn and they blink their lights and they get all angry was well, because they just have too much going on i i try to encourage my students to uh, compartmentalize especially if i'm a writing teacher when they write to uh you know turn everything else off and just do the writing and just do the reading and not to be multitasking and, and so much and, and rushing mm-hmm. That's a good point. We have to keep uh, mentioning that over and over, the repetition, until it becomes a habit. And and to remind and my son, my son Andrew actually was is very good at that. And uh, ever since he was a child, he used to when like when he I actually get in a bit of a rush sometimes. We go over to his grandmother's and we work on the farm, splitting wood and mowing and taking care of the ponies and horses. And Andrew would always just sort of go very steady. And, and uh, he wouldn't rush and he wouldn't, you know, jog from one place to the next or rush around. He'd, he'd, his grandmother would tell him to go split the wood. He'd walk out to the wood pile, get everything organized and then split the wood. And then when he became a Marine, 
he learned the the mantra the slogan uh slow is smooth smooth is fast and so then he did it even more because that's especially for snipers slow is smooth you get ready to go into action you have to slow down take a deep breath you have to really steady yourself and uh you know when you go into action you have to make it work because if it if you pull the trigger and you miss then the other guy's going to get you so um that reminds me quite a bit of andrew and that's something that he was very good at matter of fact and i have a friend uh dickie small who was in the uh who was in the green berets in vietnam he was in he did operation halo where they dove out of airplanes a, a mile up into the jungles of vietnam which which when he landed in them there was nothing but orange dust agent orange and uh he would he would do when he was in a traffic jam when, when people would honk the horn and get all mad he would just wave to him happily like <laughs> of course that irritated him too but uh i don't know maybe some people in the military know know how to do that more than we think which is good yes that is helpful whatever would have led him to respond in that way but and i think that that is good um you know what we listen to what we read um that includes the music and you know what kind of a beaten and sound and the the lyrics uh, i think it's important to to really consider what's going on that way and then we can decide how we respond Exactly. And the, and the video games are a bit on the violent side sometimes, oh, too. A little bit, the, bit more than just a bit. For very young children, yes. Yes. Thank you for sharing that memory of Andrew, Patrick, uh, because, you know, it, it, that's what we need to really keep in mind is these are human beings with a life and, you know, they've with family members, grandparents, parents, brothers and sisters, to to really see that humanity and to see the loss then that Andrew is not with you. But when you do celebrate occasions, when you have the holidays, when there are birthdays, uh, how does that work in your family? Do you have Andrew there in spirit? Do you acknowledge him that way? That's very interesting. And different family members do it different ways. And um, you know, sometimes we like to talk about, like, I'll do it more than uh, probably my wife would. I'll talk about Andrew uh, when I was teaching him to ride and, and he would get on his pony. He was a little bit hyperactive as a boy. And as soon as I put him on that pony and we go out, all the hectic energy would leave his body. And he would start asking me all these philosophic questions, you know, where does the sky end? How long is infinity? <laughs> When did time begin? When you look out into the sky, how far does it go? And he'd relax and, and ask these questions. And uh, so we'd have fun time talking about that sort of thing. Then I taught him to ski. And I remember when he, he was very, very loyal always. At one time, these uh, hotshot skiers said that I had my skis were old beat up things. And they, uh, Andrew was about 10 years old. And he heard these kids say, oh, those are two wooden slabs that that man has on. So we're going down a super steep mountain and the one hotshot skier had a fall. Andrew was a beautiful skier and he vadled down, boom, 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 and then stopped right where the kid fell and sprayed him with snow <laughs> and said, are you all right? Do you need a hand up? And then skied off. So <laughs> just uh, fun stories like that. Like right now, it just cheers me up to think of it. So those are all in my soul. And then as I talk to you, I, I start choking up because 
a moment ago, I'm in uh, Providence, Rhode Island, and I was outside and it was drizzling. And usually before an interview, I might go for a short walk and it was just so wet, I didn't go. And I was thinking, what's, what's Andrew doing on a day like today? And he's living outside all the time. It's, it's astonished me. Here I am, and I have this warm building to go back into. And he's in a tent on the banks of the Rio Grande or in the foothills over Albuquerque. He has a bicycle with all his gear on it. And he pushes a bicycle or hikes about 10 or 13 miles a day, we think. And for a minute, it just broke my heart. So it's uh, we go back and forth. I had two of his best friends over, my wife and I did. I was concerned what was going to happen. And they came over for dinner this summer. And he was always the leader of his crowd. And he had about a, a dozen guys that just loved him. And he'd come in and they'd all come over to our little farm and he'd have his arms around them. And we had these these two great friends over. And actually, we had a really good time with them laughing and telling Andrew's stories. So that kind of reinvigorated my wife and me. And then we also talked about the sadness of it and the reality of it. And that was touching for us to know how other people are experiencing this sadness and this this loss the same way we are. And lastly, it was so wonderful to see the the loyalty of these two young men. And uh, just the other day, I got a call from a father who said that Andrew saved his son's life. And the son had been out drinking late. And Andrew was about 17 or 16 years old and brought the boy back to this house. And it was late at night and the son was was in bad shape. And Andrew very quietly went up and woke up the father and told him the situation. And he and the father stayed up all night talking and playing ping pong and checking on the boy until he, you know, until he improved. And that father congratulates me and congratulates Andrew on on saving his, his son's life and in many ways changing his own life because after that, both his son and he uh, stopped drinking alcohol completely. So I hear this kind of wonderful stories. Even Andrew as a homeless man, we've heard uh, stories about him. And I I was at a 7-Eleven in Albuquerque and the the woman told me, said, I've seen him. And she said, he came in here the other night. I I said, what was going on? He said, well, this pickup truck this jacked up pickup truck with subwoofers and all this noise and the music blasting out of it pulled up next to the 7-Eleven and these three tough guys came in and I was really worried. It was late at night, midnight. They came in and she said, Andrew walked in and he uh, he looked around and he walked up to one of the tough guys and he said, uh, nice subwoofers you have there. Mind if you turn them down a little bit? I think you're making the lady here nervous. And with that, the three of them just got in the truck and drove away. <laughs> and so... Even today, we hear these good stories about him. That is so beautiful. Thank you for sharing these newer stories. And I think that teaches us, too, to be conscious of that in our lives, to share what we might, to to really you know, add more uh, of that person's life, their meaning, into the family. Uh, seeing how it's been a gift for you, it's a gift for us to hear hear that as well. And and then paints that this is, Andrew's not just this homeless person at all. Look at the, the, the big heart, the generosity that he has uh, as he moves around the country. We can think of him as being this angelic figure. <laughs> and that's what breaks our heart was that mm-hmm. Andrew was our most social child. 
when he was really young, you know, he didn't like, he liked being a home buddy, he liked being at home, hugging his mom, hugging me, doing fun, cozy things. And, and then, then uh, even when he grew up, he just loved being at home and bringing his friends in. He always had all his friends. And, and now he's just by himself day after day. And that's what he's chosen. And, and that it's just uh, his mother in particular has a, has a very difficult time realizing that he's not, you know, receiving love out there all by himself. And yet I expect that you are sending love to him, all of you, every day, so that we have to trust, don't we, that that energy is actually yes. tangible, that he is feeling it, even though we, you know, we may not know that he doesn't know it consciously, but it is reaching him. Oh, definitely. And I gave a talk recently at a church where I had a, a really good audience and the the people there were naturally were more religious than than uh, some Americans might be. And uh, afterwards, so many of them came up and they said they were going to pray for Andrew. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I hear that often, actually. And uh, it's something that, you know, that I welcome and that strengthens us. And I, I do feel like that the, the energy is, is being sent out to wherever he is and he can be receiving that. And we have a great deal of hope that, that we're going to be able to talk to him one day or get someone to talk to him, start communicating with him again and try to bring him back into society and so that he can live some sort of a constructive life. And which is what he wanted to do the last time he was at the Veterans Affairs Hospital in the psychiatric ward. And his most interesting interviews, I read hundreds and hundreds of them and he had with doctors and psychiatrists. His most interesting interviews were with a chaplain and he said it when he when he healed up, he he wanted to be a counselor, a mm-hmm. counselor to help other people with who are having uh, psychological problems. And then what happened, the viewers might be curious what happened. He was there for about 10 days and he started improving. But then once he started improving, he stopped taking the medication. He got all sure of himself. He left the hospital and then he down spiraled again into homelessness. So that's the catch-22, that you can't force him to stay somewhere. We've tried to have him in different hospitals and psychiatric wards, and they say he's lucid. We can't force him to stay here. So even though we know that if he got the correct treatment, and there's so many different methods of treatment, there's medical and yoga and all sorts of different cognitive behavior uh, therapy and equine-assisted therapy. I'm from a very horsey family. My father and uncle are both in the Racing Hall of Fame. Andrew actually was a really good rider and an excellent horseman. He had an ability to, uh, the most nervous, scared horse in the world, he could just walk right into the stall, put his hand on the horse, and the horse would relax. It was just incredible. So we want to get him back into uh, some sort of program so he can come back to us. Patrick, the pain is obvious, and of course, it we would expect it would be there. And I am therefore so grateful that you are so vulnerable to share this, because this is your pain, and we know that there are countless other people experiencing pain too, that to remember this pain, maybe that is the way that we honor our vets, is to remember this and reach out in kindness and love on this Veterans Day to, to make it different in that way, really make it sincere and loving. I think that is an excellent angle to take on the whole thing. And it's, it's, it's quite original, Kate. <laughs> 
And I think it's very important and a, and a, a wonderful, beautiful concept. Well, it's coming from my heart, and I just hope and trust it reaches other hearts and sending out all that love and energy to Andrew wherever he is in the country and other vets who are wandering like this. Well, too soon, sadly, our time is wrapping up. Let's mention your website because that's a great way to connect with you and get more information about this book, Wars Over, Come Home, but so much else that you're doing, Patrick. All right. Thank you. The website is is patricksmithwick.com, and it has excerpts and has how to get a hold of me. And it also has a podcast, and hopefully we'll soon have this radio show. And it has quite a bit of information about the book. So uh, that would be wonderful for people to go to the website. And the, the book is called Wars Over, Come Home, A Father's Search for His Son, Two-Tour Marine Veteran of the Iraq War. And when you check in around Veterans Day or just after, potentially there's going to be a really good article that you've written, Patrick, correct? Thank you. Yes, we hope to post that. We have an article that I've written about what Veterans Day means to my family. And it's very different for us. I explain about the ambiguous loss. We have lost Andrew, but we have not lost Andrew. And uh, that will be posted on the website as soon as it's published. Thank you very much for mentioning that. And, of course, the the book is on Amazon and sold at, at bookstores near you, hopefully. Well, this has been wonderful to connect with you once again. Thank you for sharing this important story with us. And I can only wish you and your family peace and consolation. Thank you, Kate. And thank you so much for your creative and and really uh, loving and and caring thoughts about Veterans Day and what we can do to make Veterans Day a, a wonderful weekend.